Welcome to Heavy Strategy, the show where we like to question all of our answers, but most importantly, not to have answered questions, mainly because you're the person in the hot seat who has to make the ultimate decisions around strategy. Today's topic is, what do we do about China? Now, let me give you some background here. China, of course, has been the manufacturing haven for most of the West and indeed most of the world for the last 20 going on 30 years. And they have progressively moved from low cost, low quality, right the way through to higher cost, high quality today. And all levels in between. China is sometimes referred to as the reason that 3D printing failed is because you can just go to China and get it made. And in the land of geopolitics, China has now decided that its political system does not want to stay integrated with the West. Now, partly that's to do with various aspects, and we're not going to get into the politics of the situation. But the reality is that China is now building its own middle class. Its production output is now going to be increasingly diverted to its own use inside of its own economy. And the West is now being forced, like it or not, and I think many like it, and to relocate its manufacturing and its production capabilities to new places. And that has impacts. It has impacts on the technology supply chain, which has been heavily dependent on China for the last, I don't know, two decades. So I'm here with Jonah again today to take this topic, what do we do about China? And particularly, what's the impact? We're going to avoid the issue of politics and say, blah, 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 because that's just not going to get us anywhere. The issue is, if China turns into something different, if it closes the gates more and more and more, what happens to technology and technology production? And is there any risks for enterprise IT? And I just want to second what uh, Greg said about not getting into the politics. Uh, We are not political scientists. We don't play political scientists on TV or on a podcast. We're just looking at the practicalities for people who make products or buy products that have some component in China or who may have operations in China, which quite a lot of our large enterprise clients do. Oh, all of them. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, not all. No, not all of my large enterprise clients have, have... even, but quite a lot of them do. I would maintain that even indirectly, because so much of your technology, so much of your furniture. No, 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 so no, much no Greg, China. I'm talking very specifically about mm-hmm. the business itself having operations in China that IT must support. There's a there's a hard bright line. You can say, oh, well, they mm-hmm. may be using Chinese technology. And yeah. in fact, we do have clients that actually have no dependency on the Chinese supply chain because federal law won't allow them to because of what they do for a living. So we do have a subset of clients who mm-hmm. actually mm-hmm. don't do anything in China in any way, shape or form. That's, if you're one of them, this podcast is not for you. No, but that's recent. That shift where the U.S. No, and it's Europe, not recent. It's no, not. It's not. Re- Greg, if you deal with the aerospace companies, there are very clear limits on defense okay. contractors. They can't have Chinese components in anything. Okay. okay. But any other normal global company has at least some operations in China, and as you point out their supply chain is is heavily dependent on China. So that's what we're going to address today. There are some links to the political background, uh, particularly the one that I was somewhat disturbed by this week is where Xi Jinping, who is the president of China for all intents and purposes, says he is preparing China for war. Now, that is a literal quote from the article and apparently yeah, that's not that's not us saying it that's no. that's the art that's a quote from him in the article in the article now you could go and read that article in foreign affairs to understand um whether that's said to just rattle a cage or not that'll give you an idea of where we're happening well 
in in fairness, Greg, let me just interject. Mm. The United States, there was uh, about three or four months ago, one of the you know retired leading retired generals in the United States said we expect to be at war with the Chinese by 2025. Mm. And quite frankly, if I were China at that point, my response would be, well, I guess we better prepare for war <laughs> since I, you know since a very large country just yeah. said they were going to be at war with us. So just just to put that in perspective, he pretty much had to say that yes, after we right. said what we said. <laughs> and so on and so on. What we're seeing in the enterprise IT space is companies like Dell has announced that it will stop using Chinese chips in its products as soon as next year, I believe. So by 2024, finding that a little hard to believe, but okay. The question that I have is, are they still going to be doing assembly in China or have they been able to move all of the assembly out? So the reason I bring that up is because when you start talking about Chinese supply chains, there's two parts here. There's the assembly of equipment. So one of the things that China has been very good at is building the metalwork that we put chips into, sticking chips on boards, soldering them to the boards, getting the boards inside of metal cases, and then putting them inside boxes, stocking them, and then shipping them out around the world. I call that assembly. And that is where we are mostly today, where most of the chips are being made in Japan, South Korea, and especially Taiwan. But so far, what we've seen is the move is to move production out of China. So that is where technology is fundamentally made in China, technology, especially hardware. So if you're buying chips from China today, a lot of power chips come from China and a lot of low value, low tech chips come out of China. So for a lot of stuff that goes into cars, for example, electric cars and so forth, I think we're seeing the shift away from anything that's been fundamentally produced. But I'm not so sure we're seeing the end of assembly in China. iPhones are still being assembled in China by and large. But the chips don't come from there. They come from other countries. Is Do we, should, do we split the difference here? Um, what's the question when you say, do we split the difference? So do you split the difference and say, there's, is it okay to assemble things in China? As long uh, as... No. Well, if, if the reason, it depends on your motivation, right? If your motivation is you want to disconnect your economy from China and you are concerned you're concerned about a dependency on an al of you know on a foreign country that might shortly become a hostile foreign country then yeah split the difference because assembly is something you can pretty much pick up and move relatively quickly however i'd like to direct everyone's attention to the super micro bug back mm -hmm. from 2018 which actually was something that i believe was put in during assembly if memory serves mm -hmm. so the point is if your goal is to avoid espionage then having anything to do with China is probably a mistake because the Chinese are extremely smart and very good at long-range thinking, much, much better than anyone in the West. And so they are very good at planning bugs in all sorts of interesting ways, shapes, and forms that can come and bite you downstream. That was that whole bug. By the way, I just want to remind everybody that bug was discovered by Amazon because there was a company that made video streaming, streaming motherboards mm. with the bug in it. And they were actually serving one of their customers was the Department of Defense, which is where oh. the U.S. Department of Defense, which is where China was going with this. Amazon oh. bought the country uh, and then pulled the product into the lab because they wanted to better understand the product before they used it and discovered the bug. What was actually interesting about it was, number one, the bug, the bug's existence and functionality was validated by external authorities. But Amazon posted many many sort of cleverly worded denials mm. so that when you parse them it turned out that they weren't actually denying there was a bug and it's, well the assertion what, what, from bloomberg in that specific case was there was a hardware chip on the motherboard true. there was never any proof that there was a hardware chip on the motherboard so they lied about Except that there, yeah there was bugs in the software which was always judged more likely but bloomberg continues to double down on the lie and in fact even promoted the journalist who promoted that false falsehood and so as a result all bloomberg 
coverage is suspect from now on for me. I'd be very, very unlikely to believe them. If you're worried about espionage, then don't even do your assembly there. If you're worried mm. about economic dependency, then yeah, maybe. Uh, take a calculated risk. This is why Dell has announced that it will stop using chips, and it's already moved a lot of its uh, assembly away to Vietnam, Indonesia, India, and I suspect you'll see that trend continue. Those are low-cost countries where you can tap a large workforce. It's relatively easy to set up factories compared to what it is in Europe and America. Uh, you don't have to go through extensive planning processes and have expensive buildings, and it does make sense. The real trick here is what happens to ASIC production or chip production, which that's probably the part that I'm most concerned about is that raw material mm -hmm. is, is the concern. Well, I think there's raw material on two fronts. One is actually the raw material that goes into the chips, which is a whole different discussion because the supply chains there are complex and, and very vulnerable. In the U.S., I think the response has been I have a running bet that I am actually starting to look like I'm going to lose, which is that the chip fabs in the U.S. that Biden has put, put such emphasis on are not my bet is that they're not going to be operational until after 2025. It looks like at least one of them is looking like it's going to be operational later this year. So I may miss this bet by about two years. So the U.S. is actually really kind of putting a full court press on bringing chip fabrication back on its shores. And from what I've seen, because I bet against it, yeah. it's looking like it's it's looking like yeah. it might succeed. Now, whether it'll handle the capacity, that I don't know. I haven't done any kind of analysis. Yeah. What do you think, Greg? Well, $53 billion is a lot of free money. So the yeah. number they've allocated fifty three billion, and U.S. companies do love a good handout. There's nothing like mm -hmm. a tech, nothing like a U.S. tech company That's to get, you know, they're big free on free handouts. Yes, the yeah. free market is a wonderful thing as long as yeah. it means free money for me. You know, when they make massive profits, they say it was all their work. But anyway, I digress. Exactly. Let's. Now, we said we weren't talking about politics, Greg. Now it should also be noted that, for example, Taiwan and Japan both have heavy government subsidies for their ASIC production. So that is not new. There are unique risks associated with this. And it does require huge amounts of upfront capital. You're talking even a small plant or a small fab is something in the order of 4 to $10 billion. You have to spend okay. all of that before you even start making money. So basically, there's a question mark over whether the capacity will be there in the short term. Uh, hmm. I think it will be in the long term, given the size of the, the handouts. I want to sort of twist the discussion a little bit around to IT professionals at companies that have operations in places like mm -hmm. China, because we've gotten a lot of requests lately that say, hypothetically, in the purely hypothetical event that we would have to hypothetically pull out of operations very, very quickly in a particular geography, what are some of the things we should think about technically? I would point out that Russia invading Ukraine, which is, you know, historical fact it happened, uh, caused a lot of this thinking because people realized, oh, crap, we've got to disengage from Russia really fast and we have no idea how to do it. And without hijacking the conversation too, too long, I would love for every technology professional who works at a global company, whether directed to or not, start to put in place a plan for this. And just to highlight what goes into this, you need to think in terms of modularity rather than centralization, which is a hard nut to crack for a lot of IT mm. organizations because they've been heavily centralizing. We can talk at length about this. I would rather not because we have a report on it and you're welcome to come hit Namurdi's and come read the report. The themes you want to be thinking about are our agility, comprehensiveness, and security as you think about all of this. And that's going to be across multiple domains, both infrastructure, which is network storage computing facilities, identity, including employees and contractors, applications, including on-prem, IaaS, PaaS, and SaaS, and data. These are all areas you want to think about.
digging into the networking for just a second, you need to think about your address space. If you're still using RFC 1918, you probably don't want to be doing that unless you're going to start walling off with firewall, internal firewalls, the geographic domains that you may need to segment out. Even then, it may be an issue, but you need to you need to firewall all of your address, address space. You may also want to think about using BGP internally so that that allows you to, to calve things off even quicker. Your Active Directory structure needs to be reassessed in light of the mm. po potential need to cut off large groups of employees. Your application access policies really need to be addressed. So you want to think about something like ZTNA so that you can quickly and easily disconnect employees, certain categories of employees from access. You should also think about what applications are running where. For example, if in a particular geography you have a mission-critical application that's important to the rest of the company, then you probably want to move it or duplicate it someplace, someplace else. And you need to think across the board about your cloud-based applications. You need to make sure that all of your access policies and instance locations have this principle of modularity kind of driving them. And there's more to it than that, and I'll jump on that if there's time. But mm. I think if I can just put a flag in there that says if you're an IT professional at a global company and you have not thought about the need for what we call rapid geographic partitioning, <laughs> now would be an excellent time, time to do start. that. So what you're essentially saying is if you've got a business or a business unit or a owned company somewhere in China or in within that domain, you want to isolate its accesses and, and control the data flows so that they don't have access to stuff that isn't relevant to that particular business unit in case you have to either abandon it in the worst case or there's something. Now, I'm going to hark back. It was about three years ago when Arm was moving a lot of its research to China and it established an operation there, Arm China. And of course, any business that you set up in China has to be 51% owned by a local operative. And yep. Arm China decided that they were going to sell the company and the Chinese branch, apparently with support of the Communist Party, uh, decided to just take it and run with it. So apparently in China, there's a special seal to, or chop. And if you're going to change ownership or do or dispose anybody, you have to use the chop mark on a paper. And if you don't have the chop, you can't actually sign off on any documents. And as a result, um, China has been taken. And it's certain articles have suggested that the um, China operation went around and scoured the entire um, globally the databases and everything, and took a copy of it. And now ARM no longer effectively has any control over ARM in China, which is now off doing its own thing, but it has all the intellectual property, access to all the research of the business at that point in time that it ran away, and now is effectively a competitor to ARM globally. ARM's not talking about that very loudly because not a good look when you're trying to go for an IPO on the New York Stock Exchange, but that is an example of what we're talking about in technology as, as a business operation. I Exactly. And I'll just I'll take it to the to the next level and say, and point out that what we're calling rapid geographic partitioning is a special case of mergers, acquisitions and divestitures. We call that the MAD clause or MAD that has to be thought about whenever you're procuring anything. When you're procuring anything, particularly but not exclusively telecommunication services, also software, also hardware, you want to make sure that your contract has a MAD clause in it that essentially says if you divest for business reasons, if you acquire, merge or divest, you get to A, keep the same rate if you choose so that so that whether it's Microsoft or AT&T or whoever it is can't come back and say, oops, you bought a whole lot less now. 
we have to raise your rates. That has to that has to not be possible. Hmm. You have the right to renegotiate, the unilateral right to renegotiate if you think you can get a better rate. For example, if you happen to be acquiring a company who has a better rate, you can go back to Microsoft or AT&T or whoever and say, I need their rate. Uh, and you, you, you should have no financial penalty for making this divestiture, for example. Most companies actually don't do this and they should, particularly relevant in the case where your your hand is forced, not by business reasons, but by geopolitical reasons. That's the other reason that you really should be thinking about this principle of modularity, because most companies these days grow by acquisition. And pretty much every client that I've ever worked with has done an unexpected to the IT department divestiture. Oh, we spun off XYZ PDQ because the, you know, the powers that be decided we're no longer in that business. Mm. If, if you're IT, you don't want to be caught flat footed in that scenario. So you should have contractual protection as well as architectural protection that we just talked about. And then you should also have a team that specializes in figuring out how this works. And I can talk more about that in a bit. <laughs> But again, just want to flag this, that mm. if you need to cease operations in a geography very quickly while maintaining and protecting your intellectual property, Greg, as you said, mm. you need to have a plan to do that. It can't just be, oh, crap, what are we going to do? My immediate idea is the obvious mm -hmm. one is to implement SD-WAN and SASE because yep. that's an obvious well, I step. Well, I would argue that ZTNA is much better than SASE because you, you, well, don't have the dependence on, you don't have the dependence on the carrier, but it doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah. yeah. If you're in China, yeah. you're going to be using an SD-WAN anyway. Because exactly. getting a comms link out of China is extremely difficult of any capacity. And I don't dis discriminate between zero trust and SASE anymore. It's all I, the same. I do because there, there, there are pieces of the architecture that are that are different. The yeah. whole concept of the edge controlled by somebody else is, is nonsense. Yeah. Um, but that, that's neither here nor there. You need to rethink your, your network security sort of together. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm knitting my fingers here. You can't quite see this. <laughs> but, you know, you need to be putting in place SD-WAN. You need to be putting in place... That's ZTNA, the starting point. Ideally. Yeah. yeah, exactly. But then you've got to have data repositories that can be isolated and segmented exactly. very quickly. You know, if you've got shared S3 buckets in an AWS cloud or databases which are shared in an Azure cloud. Exactly. You need to have those partitioned in the cloud. And moving right along on all of this, you also need, crazy as it sounds, the, the ability to do remote power cycles of things. Because if all else fails, turn the damn thing off now mm. is kind of it, it is necessary. And what's actually quite interesting is a number of our clients got caught with when with COVID. They actually had to reconfigure the routers in physical locations where they couldn't send people because China had imposed the first of the lockdowns. We can't reboot our routers if we can't get it. We can't get into the facility. So yeah. have a back channel so you can power things on and off. Another part of this was the one that you brought up, which is, I just want to pick this out because it's not something I've ever thought of before. Which oh, is, we've done a lot of work with clients. Yeah, yeah, go on. So if you divest yourself of maybe as much as a third of the company, that can affect your strategic planning around if you're off-prem cloud, you might have pitched on a certain volume and, and attracted a certain discount. As you say, Microsoft Office licenses might be at a certain break of discount. Yeah, you need to think about that very early on. And that's mm -hmm. why when, when we work with clients to negotiate uh, telecom contracts or large software contracts, we put in the MAD clause. I will advise you that some, some of you listening to this may be saying, yeah, Jonna, thanks for the advice, but the, the vendors won't let me. If you're a large enough company, it doesn't really matter. You get your senior executives to talk to their senior executives and the clause will go in. I guarantee mm -hmm. you that many, many, many MAD clauses have gone into contracts. If you're a $50 million company, you may not get that. And yeah. so you need to plan but around that. I'm just sitting here thinking, like, if you've got a five-year reserved instance in the cloud mm -hmm. and you exactly. need to walk away from it, 
And a mad clause, which is mergers, acquisitions, disposals, that's important because all of a sudden you might have bought so many of these reserved instances and now you'll never use them. The other, the other fun thing, just to just to go back in the day, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, my absolute all-time favorite favorite failure to prepare was when AT and T spun off Lucent. AT and T had something like ten Class A addresses or some ridiculously large number of the Class mm-hmm. A addresses, and I distinctly remember the conversation because AT and T sat down with Lucent and or what was going to become Lucent, and the Lucent lawyers said. You know, somebody said, well, what about the addresses? And the lawyers said, well, can they be monetized? And at that point, there was no market in them. Mm. The AT&T lawyers said, truthfully, nope. And then the, the lawyers said, oh, okay, they have no value then. And AT&T was like, ha, 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 ha. I can forget which side, actually, <laughs> yeah. now that I now that I'm thinking yeah. about it. Maybe Lucent that walked off with them. But the point was, you need to be thinking about your intangible assets, such mm. as what you just said, Greg, stuff mm. in the cloud that you've already paid for, yeah. that you can't get back. What happens to it? Yeah, I mean, in the um, cloud, it's different too, because if you stop using those instances, they can just go and sell them to somebody else. They've got some reservations and you might have upset their forward planning, but it's not like you've got a warehouse data center full of computers waiting to be used and all of a sudden that's dead money down the tubes. It's not in this case. So yeah, you can uh, certainly do that with a cloud provider. I said I would get back to it, so I will. You know, one of the things you really want to do is pull together what we call a tiger team. Um, most organizations hate to do this because their IT people are already oversubscribed, but in today's business reality, you you better. And this tiger team needs to include specialists from all of the technology areas just that, are, that I talked about again, infrastructure, identity, applications, and data. But you also want legal. You also want HR. And you also want uh, risk management folks in there so you can have meaningful conversations like this. Like, hey, if we are given 10 days warning, the cost of divesting will be X. If we're given 20 days warning, it's Y. If we're giving you know, two hours, it's going to be Z just so that the company can decide, factor that in as it's making decisions. Mm. Now, realistically, IT costs are a fraction of, you know, a rounding error on a lot of companies' budgets. It should be considered because CEOs usually don't think about, of (laughs) non-tech companies, usually don't think about the the cost and difficulty of rapidly divesting operations. Just interesting ways to think about it from an IT point of view. Obviously, there's the supply chain, but what you're actually saying is in tied your operation at a business level, not even at a technology level, there's ways to that this can happen uh, if you've got Chinese operations or Chinese business units that may need to or, be EOL'd in a hurry. And what I would suggest for IT professionals, you know, that they'll usually come back and say, Jonna, this is all great, but my managers aren't even thinking of this. As always, you'd better think about it so that when they call you, you can say, yeah, we have a plan. Now, it's better to actually have a conversation with them right up front. And actually, you know, the last thing I would suggest, and it really is, is kind of the last piece. There's a whole deep dive we could do into the technology that I've scratched the surface of. We talked about procurement. We talked about the organizational structure with Tiger Teams. The last thing I would suggest is that you do early and often do wargaming scenarios so that you can play what ifs because that's where you're going to discover all the hidden weaknesses. Oh, crap, this application can't be turned off. Mm. Oh, darn, we can't calve off the users of this cloud service or whatever it is. We don't have a process set in place so that so that we can confirm that it's time to to take some drastic action, we need to set that process up. You know, we, I wonder we how much understand. of this you could use as a lever. Like, it's not going to be the only lever in a proposal, but if you put it in for why you want to move to a multi micro segmented infrastructure, or why you need to have things isolated, and you talk about MAD, you know, mergers, acquisitions, divestitures, the changing geopolitical landscape, and the ability to respond rapidly could also talk about 
the current COVID pandemic is not over. There is a chance of a, uh, of a return, a small chance, increasingly small. But we're also seeing at any time we've seen bird flu or something similar come up over the last whatever period. So you could put it into your proposals and say, we need to move to this technology because. Is that viable, do you think? I think that's not only viable, but that's brilliant mm. and had not thought of it. But back when you started talking about SD-WAN and ZTNA, mm. actually, if I were a technologist, I would definitely do that and mm -hmm. say, use it as an excuse. Because, by the way, I read a book probably 20 years before COVID, just about 2003. It was about the 1918 flu. And at the back of the, of the book, the author was actually a medical historian, really interesting specialty. And at the back of the book, he said pretty much, look for the, ne the the pandemics are not over. Look for the next one to come out of China to be associated with animal-human contact, and it will probably happen soonish. And he described COVID-19 to a T without knowing anything about it because it didn't exist yet. And his point was this is going to happen more and more frequently, not less and less frequently. Yeah. So when you were saying, well, it might be bird flu, it could be anything. And, and again, yeah. it's not just China. We're beating up on China, but it could be anything, anywhere. <laughs> it could come from anywhere. It could come from Africa or Europe or whatever. Exactly. The interesting part about this is there's two sides to this. You look really good when you put that sort of stuff in your reasoning. You're thinking of geopolitics yes. and high-level business issues. You're not just being exactly. a technologist. And the second thing is if they say no, you can always throw it in their faces and go, nah, 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 which is always fun doesn't help the situation well and it's at also all. it's also but, it's well actually it does because yeah. I, I i still tell this story many 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 years ago back in the days when frame relay first came out um, senior management was was worried about having an infrastructure they didn't own the carriers actually came out with various various flavors of backup for frame relay to kind of restore everybody's trust the problem is it increased the cost per site by you know some whopping sum of something like 10 to 12 dollars per site and so what we counseled all our clients to do at that point was to get a definitive sign off. Either, mm. yes, we will pay 10 to $12 or no, we won't. Here is our plan if, if and only if something bad happens. So we had three categories of clients, the people that got the backup and paid for it, the people mm. that uh, reviewed the idea of the backup, signed off on it, be signed off on no backup because of cost issues mm -hmm. and had a process around it. Uh, just to give you an example of a process around it, that would be like grocery stores who said mm -hmm. this was a real life pro process, that they were using frame relay for point of sale and that any transaction under 100 bucks would just go through mm. and they wouldn't check it. And then there were the folks that never did had the conversation. And mm. sure enough, AT&T had a frame relay outage and we had three categories of customers, two of which were happy, one was not. The people that signed off on getting the backup were happy because their network didn't go down. The people mm -hmm. that whose network went down were fine because they went to the backup strategy and everybody mm -hmm. understood. It was only the people who hadn't had the hard conversation that were in a world of hurt because they were getting blamed for something that wasn't their fault. Mm. So, Greg, as you say, if you go if you go to senior management and say, this is how I'm going to get you protection, yeah. and senior management says, thanks, I don't need protection, your job here is done. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Just you, get it in writing. You can either be smug or and say, I told you so. Or say, I'm ready. I've put the proposals forward before. I prefer to do both. <laughs> I, I like well, to say, I told you so, and here's the answer. <laughs> right, but get it in writing, by the way. If they mm. decline, if they decline your technology uh, proposal for various reasons, just send an email back saying, "Thanks, I understood that you're not going to, you know, spend two million dollars on the ZTNA thing." And I'm just reminding you that in the event of rapid geop geopolitical partitioning, uh, we will not be able to partition rapidly. 
Well, on that note, I think we'll wrap it up here today for Heavy Strategy. Jonah, where can people find more? And you talked oh, about a paper or some research uh, yes, related come, to this. Yes, come hit us up at nemertes.com. There is a form that says community. All of our research that is available to clients and non-clients goes into the community. So fill out the form, cite Heavy Strategy. And by the way, Greg hangs out in community and occasionally makes pithy comments there as well. So again, nemertes.com, look for the community uh, tab and fill out the form. Mention Heavy Strategy. I'm Greg Farrow. You can find me on Twitter as at EtherealMind and also over at PacketPushers.net. We have lots of other podcasts in the Packet Pushers Network. So there's uh, seven channels in total. Uh, look out for our new wireless channel, which is coming up soon. And thanks very much for listening, and we'll see you again in a couple of weeks.